1 Samuel chapter 17. We will not get the entire chapter, but we'll get as much of it as we can. Um, Probably one of the most exciting chapters in all the Old Testament. We'll go right to it. The title, David Meets Goliath. Verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and were gathered at Sokol, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Sokol, Azekah, and Ephes Damin. <sighs> That's out of the way. Well, the Philistines are likely the inveterate enemies of the Jews, looking to sort of even the score after taking the beating that was initiated some time back through Jonathan. And we don't know how much time has passed. Israel has formed a standing army. They're much stronger. And uh, here they are going to meet at the, in, in the Valley of Elah. In verse 2, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the Valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. Well, Saul had at least a thousand with him initially before Jonathan started the battle before. Uh, Verse 18 will also give us an indication that there's quite a large army here. That will provide witnesses for what we know is going to happen. There are going to be a lot of people who watched David bring down the giant. Oh, did I spoil the story for anyone? (laughs) So we have this army of witnesses, and what really, what good is what we do if the glory doesn't get to God? That's what we're after. That is one of the prizes of serving the Lord Jesus Christ, is bringing glory to Him. But it's a blood-stained road. And to think that Christianity is just this nice, smooth Bible study is to be delusional. Uh, it, is, uh, it is loaded with stress. Faith is not easy. One of the beautiful things about heaven is there'll be no faith necessary. It will all be done, all behind us. We will be in a matured, the most matured state of all as beings uh, because of what Jesus has done and what we've gone through in this life. In verse 3 The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So here we have the stalemate, the standoff. Neither army wanted to attack because it would have put them at the disadvantage of fighting uphill. So they just kind of uh, stalled there, verse 4 now. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Well, it's cubits. It sounds like, you know, how you would measure a Martian. He was a cubit tall. All right. Well, some people like that kind of humor. I guess they're not here tonight. But (laughs) anyway, here, Goliath is certainly larger than Samson, but inferior to Samson. And uh, he shows up larger than life. He was very good with a heavy sword, just not good at dodging rocks, as we'll find out. But this height, nine foot six inches thereabout, some of the modern commentators try to walk this back. They point to the Septuagint, to the 
scrolls at Quram and to uh, uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian. But it doesn't, it's not consistent with other giants in the Bible. And I'm not talking about those of Genesis 6 because I do not be- take the sci-fi approach to that verse. I believe those were people who were uh, just enslaving everybody else, the giants in the land as far as the power. But as far as literal giants go, for instance, the king, king Og of the Ammonites, uh, he was uh, his bed. We're not, we're not told how tall he was. We're told his bed was 13 feet long. Well, you wouldn't, I mean, it wasn't just, he just like long, you know, the California king or something. It, he just was probably very tall. And n- most of the commentators don't walk that back when they get there. Only when they get to Goliath, these modern commentators do that. Then there was an Egyptian who was seven foot five inches tall in First Chronicles 11. Again, no one tries to walk that back. So I, I'm not, uh, I believe he was nine fo- over nine foot tall. I believe he was scouted by the NBA. But National Basketball Association for you soccer fans. Uh, anyway, we, that's all the humor tonight. Now, after this, we're going to get, there's no more laughing. Please stop. <laughs> all right. Verse 5. He had a bronze helmet on his head and was armed with a coat of mail and... The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Well, you want to make postal jokes at this point. They're they're really hard to resist, but I'm not going to. I don't want to offend our non-postal workers either. I'm kind of in a giddy mood, am I not? All right. Let's just get it together here. So, great. Here the the Jews are lined up for war, and this giant struts out every day, and he's verbally harassing them. He's heavily armed. He's got body armor. I mean, real body armor. And he's nasty disposition about him. In contrast to his fellow soldiers, troops, his helmet is bronze. And you probably could make a lot of stew in his helmet. Uh, Saul, King Saul has a bronze helmet also. They were rare. This one, of course, was deemed worthy to wear a bronze helmet. And uh, so he's not only big and strong, that's important because the weight of his armor is over 130 pounds, just the the coat of mail and the the spearhead that he's carrying. He's up around 140 pounds already, and that's why after David killed him and, and took his armor, someone weighed it and made a record of it for others, because it was quite impressive. 500 shekels, it's, we're told that's about 125 pounds. Uh, the spearhead is 15 pounds. Imagine if that thing was slammed into you. Uh, so uh, here we have this strong man who is also uh, very tall, because you can be, of course, very tall and, and not so strong. In verse 6, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. And so he has what we would call shin guards, made of a lighter metal, the bronze. And uh, they've invested in his appearance like they needed to do that. But you can imagine the sun beaming off of this guy. He's glowing and uh, just uh, quite impressive. This javelin between his shoulders, it's sort of over his shoulders for him to grab and throw very quickly. He's just resting between 
his shoulder blades. And uh, again, uh, he's got a spear. He has a sword. He's got a javelin. So he's got three ways to kill you with uh, weapons. And then he, he has this heavy body armor uh, that, uh, you know, a, a bulletproof vest is heavy and inconvenient, but 125 pounds of metal on you is no, not easy either. Verse 7, now the staff was of his, uh, now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield bearer went before him. So, uh, man-made armor will prove to be ineffective against God-aimed missiles, the missile of David's smooth stone, the armor won't be able to save him. Now, we read this story and we say, okay, what's the spiritual application to this? All right, so the armor of, of the enemy of God's people, it's, it's serious business. He's a deadly man. And we say at the end, yes, but it cannot save him. Well, that, in this case, it did not. But if we go out in real life and we expect the battles that we face to be smooth as David's, uh, it's not most of the time going to be that way. It's the helmet that he wore, of course, is not the helmet of salvation. It's not the breastplate of righteousness. We notice these things. We make comment on them because we're looking for something. We want some lesson from God to apply to our own lives that we can use on the battlefield of our lives and not just read about them in the history of this great man of God. At the end, we know we win, but what happens before until we get to the end? It's that fight of that vicious fight, oftentimes of faith. In my life, there have been easy fights of faith, and there have been some very, very tough ones. The shield bearer, the esquire, he carried this man's heavy shield to help preserve the enemy of the giant for when he's actually in, going to engage in action against his opponent. And what we clearly the story is telling us that the enemies we face in life can be uh, protected by immense shields. Well, that's encouraging. Of course, it's not encouraging. The encouraging part is that I'm still called to engage the giant and not to sit on the sidelines as the story goes, because were it not for David, nothing would have happened, nothing good. And so... Verse 8, keep hopefully bringing out things. I'll pause here and, and reading many of the commentators. Some of them are a little flowery. And it's just, you know, idyllic language. It's like, oh, that's beautiful, but it's not real. And so the challenge is to, to any Bible student to come to the story of the Scripture is to keep it real. I mean, if you, you go to the story where Jesus raised people from the dead, and you know he doesn't always do this. You've you got to face the, these these things and find an application that is meaningful enough to be useful to God. And uh, it has been useful over the centuries because countless multitudes have been saved through these Bible stories. Verse, and, and many at the time that they took place. Verse 8 now. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And you, the servants of Saul, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. <laughs> Nobody couldn't choose anybody. Uh, 
Uh, all right, who, any volunteers? And it's just nothing. Well, the world is full of tough guys. I mean, really tough guys who are bad also. And they have big mouths. And the giant, naturally impressive, spiritually unexciting. And you've got to keep that in mind or else we lose heart. We lose courage. How much courage do we need? Enough to get to the, to the victory. That's how much we need. And the slapping around that we take in the midst of that, is, that's the battle. That's why sometimes I cringe when I hear people talk about prayer warriors because there's nothing romantic about war, physical or spiritual. And uh, the giant, as I mentioned, impressive, uh, the Jews could not choose a man good enough to face him any more than they could choose a king good enough to rule over them. God would have to supply the king. And God did supply, uh, not the king, pardon me, the, the, the champion. God did supply the champion to face the giant. He's done it many times in the scripture. He supplied Esther and Mordecai. Well, really, Mordecai started the whole thing. But... Uh, Esther was uh, certainly, she became one of the heroines of, of the scripture. And then, of course, there's our Jesus, who is our champion. And now, verse 9, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Dreadful consequences. It's not a game. This really happened still happens to some degree in some way to us. At some point in life, we're faced with something that offers dreadful consequences, and we're either going to face it or be enslaved by it. And this, uh, now, I don't know really what would have happened. Probably if they sent a giant uh, a champion of the Jews out and he was slain, the Jews probably would have just ran for their homes. Um, or they would have stood and fight, which was not very likely. So it's an awful picture we have here. Verse 10, And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. This is the voice of the flesh. It is belligerent. It is looking for a fight against the spirit. And it's not going to quit. It has to be beaten into place. Um, it is ready to fight the spirit to the death. Unfortunately for this giant, uh, David will hear these same words when we get to verse 23, which will seal the fate of this man, who, when he got up in the morning in his tent he, and put his big sandals on, he didn't realize it would be the last day of his life because of those words When David, after David hears them. Verse 11 when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Well, how many times do we hear Jesus say, fear not? And how many times in life do we not seem to hear him say that to us? Sometimes you do. Sometimes I've heard him still worry about this. I have this. And other times I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Say it. Please say I've got this. And nothing. It's just the fight. But this here, verse 11, Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines. They were dismayed. They lost heart. They're greatly afraid. Saul is helpless here as king. He's not head and shoulders over Goliath. He was afraid. It is the most common adjective applied to Saul, that he's afraid. 
We covered this in chapter 10. We'll cover it briefly again. He was always afraid of the wrong thing. Well, the right thing according to the flesh, not the spirit. When he was called to be king, he's hiding amongst the stuff. And that's a more accurate Jewish term than equipment to stuff. Because it involved more than just, it was just all sorts of things. He was afraid in, in chapter 13 of the Philistine hordes. In chapter 28, again, which will be the last time he faces the, the Philistines in battle. It will be clearly stated he was afraid then. He was afraid of his own army. We get to chapter 15. Afraid of a coup in chapter 22. He's afraid here of Goliath. Twice that will be brought out. He's afraid of David by the time we get to chapter 18. And at his death, he's so afraid of the Philistines. He's afraid of death. He's, uh, he's just this kind of man. Why? Because he had no instinct for God. He just wasn't interested in God. That's how he lived his life. And the record is here, bears it right out. In contrast to David, who's said to be afraid of only two things. Of course, he had other fears. Traffic on the way home. Things like that. But and seriously, uh, speaking of David, he was afraid of a situation he got himself into with King Achish of the Philistines. When he had to play like he was crazy to get out of that jam that he brought on himself. But Saul was the cause of that. Real, truly. And then the other time we're told David was afraid was of God. Second Samuel chapter 6. This is when he's moving the Ark of the Covenant. David was afraid of Yahweh that day. And he said, how can the Ark of Yahweh come to me? Well, that caused a lot of introspection, a lot of uh, heart searching on David's part, spiritually before God. He took on a spiritual event and he did it the wrong way. Someone died. It doesn't happen too much in churches nowadays. And we're grateful of that. Well, Saul could only see trouble. That's what the Bible's telling us about this man. Every, we're going to read again as we move through Samuel. Uh, we're going to read about Saul was afraid. Saul was afraid. Saul was afraid. That's how he lived his life. Who wants a throne like that? Goliath said, you're the servants of Saul. And that's what they were, servants of Saul. They were all afraid together. Fear is contagious. It's spread through an army of men. and spread through a family. Spread through an individual's body. Panic. And we, we don't, we want to, as best we can, ready ourselves for these things. And Scripture is telling us fear is a very real opponent. Be good to be ready for it. And David was ready, incidentally. He doesn't just show up with his hands in his pockets, whistling a tune. You know, I'll have a shot at the giant. Now, there's a lot to the story. We'll, we'll come to it. But when the flesh sees the work of the devil, it becomes fearful and powerless when it looks just at what the devil is doing what the devil is getting away with it has no option the flesh will panic the spirit may be nauseated but it will fight it may get knocked down and have to regroup but it will get up and it will fight and that's what god is looking for christ wanted that from his disciples or else he would not have sent them to their deaths and he promised them that was, they, were, they would be persecuted. There's no glory in being terrified. And there's no, you know, we have, we face, we have a righteous indignation that's suitable to our personality. Me, I like the idea of making the enemy pay. 
when I can. Uh, it's not easy. It's easy to say it. It's another thing to do it. I try to work hard for the king to make it count against the enemy. Uh, walking, living life, saying, well, we don't want to get the devil upset. He's already upset. Uh, he's going to come at us anyway. The giant's confidence killed the confidence of the Jews. He was so cocky, so arrogant, who would dare come out against him? There's somebody that was just not interested. <laughs> not interested in this confidence. They had his own confidence. His righteous indignation fueled him forward. And it, this confidence of the giant left the people in dread. These warriors, these men of war, discouraged. Faith does provide the antidote. But, depending on the strength of the poison, the antidote's not cheap. And it'd be good for us to understand that. When Paul said these words, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. He had already been beat up several times. He knew what he was saying when he said this. We read these words and we say, I want to be a man like this when it's my turn to have to face death or something else. I mean, there are worse things than death. It's a slow death. By, by cannibals who nibble. <laughs> there are slow deaths. And Paul adds to that. He says, I count my life, uh, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. How do you do that when you think God is letting you perish? He did it. It's, it's not magic. It's faith. And he says to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What grace of God? You're dying for him. That's how the flesh thinks. Uh, Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who... Oh, I just forgot to quote. That's why you write them down. So I'll just make it up. You won't know. <laughs> He's no fool to let go of that which he cannot keep for that which we cannot lose, goes the quote. And if you don't know who Jim Elliott is, it's good to familiarize his book... Uh, uh, I don't know. We should carry it in a chapel store. It's worth reading. Uh, verse 12. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years, in the days of Saul. Now certainly the historian has compiled this information from various records and the, from the witnesses that were involved. And he's writing back, and he, he says, Jesse was in the days of Saul. David, the son of Jesse, has likely gone through a growth spurt since Samuel anointed him. When he came running, you know, with his cheeks all ready and his head, you know, red hair, and he's just this young, you know, handsome lad. The first impression he made on, on Samuel. And, well, he's probably gone through a growth spurt. We'll get to that. But, uh, he, you know, he's been playing in the king's court a few times, going home back and forth. Verse 13, the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. Now, why don't you mothers name your boys those names? <laughs> anyway... These men, uh, these brothers of David, uh, they were strong men, 
but it was it was natural manhood. That's that's all they had. There was not the spiritual strength that was had become innate, if you can say it that way, in David. According to Numbers 1, only men 20 years of age and older were to be numbered for war, but we don't read of them being restricted if they were younger. Otherwise, David would have been a violation of the law to send him onto the battlefield. He is not part of the standing army. Uh, he's an errand boy at this point. Diakonos in the Greek, the, the, the errand boy for the Lord. There's the bond servant, doulos, and then there is the diakonos, deacon. We get our word deacon from that. We're just errand boys for the Lord and happy to be so. And so, uh, anyway, he goes to the battle line. He's not 20. He's not in the standing army, but he's going to be dispatched. In verse 14, David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. Well, Jesse was unaware that his son David was going to be a war hero the day he sends him out. I mean, he sends him out with cheese and bread and wine, and he expects him to come back from the battle lines as the, your sons are fine. That's what Jesse is expecting. What's going to happen is someone's going to show up at Jesse's house and say, David killed Goliath. And Jesse's going to say, get out of here. It's not funny. You know, I'm telling you, he killed him. He's walking around with his big head in his hand. And it's, it's amazing to, to these things. Um, and the sheep are in the field. They could care less about all this. And some of them will be for dinner and some of them for pets. Anyway, life, you know. There was an old song, uh, The Ball of Confusion, and one of the lyrics was, and the band played on. It's just, you know, all of this drama going around, but, you know, it, things just keep going. And uh, anyway, David will no longer be under Jesse's care, but God's care after this day. But right now, at this moment in verse 14, he's still under his father's authority, verse 15. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem, seven miles. Uh, Saul's in uh, Gibeah. And David is in Bethlehem, about seven miles, so it, uh, it's not that far. But it's a lesson for our teens that uh, while you may hold a job in the king's court, you still have responsibilities at home. You're not excused from them. And this is at your point. Say, see, I didn't want to come to church tonight because he says things like that. <laughs> it makes me have to empty the dishwasher or take out the trash. Uh, anyway, uh, this is a noble act of David because we're going to just see him as a servant, someone faithful with the little things, and God hands him the big things. Verse 16, and, and, and I'm not even making the, the connections yet. I'll make some, hopefully, between David as a type of Christ. And, uh, of, of course, uh, they, they're very time-consuming because of the, the references that would be necessary. It's hard to do it on a verse-by-verse uh, verse 16, and the Philistines drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Great. 40 days of nausea. Persistent is the flesh. That's the, that's the message. It's not always 40 days. It can be years. Day and night. And not just a little bit. And it's through the flesh that Satan taunts and threatens and does damage wherever he can. And God's people are the targets. And that's this picture, this giant coming out with his big mouth, intimidating everyone, and no one can stop him. Verse 17, 
Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp. You might say, well, why didn't they just kill Goliath with an arrow? Well, that's why he had his shield. It uh, wasn't going to be easy to get close enough to do that. Verse 17 uh, is where we are now, where Jesse dispatches David with these supplies. Uh, up until this point, or right here at this point, every time we see David, he is doing something for someone else. He is either on an errand for his father, he's watching his father's flock, or he's playing songs for Saul. And it is a beautiful picture, of course. It's an image of Christ. When we see Christ, we see him about his father's business, and we see him doing things for others. Um, 1 John chapter 4, verse 14 And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. And so here, again, David sent by his Father where? To the battlefield, to where the action was supposed to be. In Christ's case, of course, it's the battlefield against sin on our behalf. Uh, Thank God, if we had a moody God, he would have said, no, I'm just not in the mood. I don't feel like going down there and dying for them. We don't have a God like that, why we love him so much. Verse 18, and carry these ten cheeses to the captains of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. I wonder how much of that cheese made it out of the captain's tent. <laughs> so, well, we know, there's your at least a thousand witnesses, incidentally, of David's victory. They're more than a thousand for sure, but they're, that's a lot. Verse 19, now Saul... And they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Um, The historian is kind. (laughs) Uh, The only thing the army of Israel was fighting was fear. There was no fighting of the Philistines. We don't even read of skirmishes, little battles to the left and right here and there, check out the army's strengths. There's nothing going on but just this giant coming out and making everyone nervous. Verse 20, So David rose in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. Well, sort of kind of going out (laughs) for the fight and shouting for the battle. That would not be. But of course, you know, how would you... He's about his father's business here. But notice again... He leaves the sheep in someone's care. He's not, oh, I forgot. He's, he's not airheaded. He's a focused lad, which, you know, causes everybody else to have to step up to that, to be uh, compliant with the lessons of Scripture. Verse 21, for Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. Well, this was saber-rattling. That's pretty much all that was going on. They were getting up there in the morning after their coffee and and yelling at each other across the valley, but nobody dare make a move. Verse 22, And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. 
This again, you see, he leaves the supplies in the hands of the supplies. He doesn't just abandon them, leave for some other hungry group to come and strip the wagon. He's, he's very solid. He's responsible. And he's polite. And that's going to come out. He's polite under pressure. It's going to come out when his oldest brother begins to kind of belittle him. But here we read, he ran to the army. Three times in this chapter, we're going to read about David running. He runs to the line of battle. He runs to face the enemy. And then he ran to finish the enemy. This is, you know, we talk about the, time, the only time in Scripture we see God cry is Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. When's the time we see God run? Well, when the prodigal comes home, we see him run. And when the, David goes to meet the giant, the giant enemy of God's people. It's an image, a picture of God running to face the enemy. And that's what the Lord said, you know, when he spoke about, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And how I wish it was. You know, he's running towards the cross. He steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem, like a flint, using the language of Isaiah. And it's a, it's a great picture. You could pass over it very quickly. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper. Noble lad. Ran to the army. And he's not done. Verse 23. And then, as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words, so David heard them. Drama music right there. That's when the camera goes to David's face. It catches eyes. What? <laughs> what, what did he just say? <laughs> kind of the moment. Again, little did anyone realize. This was the beginning of Goliath's death. Goliath's fatal mistake on this day for him was that the wrong man heard what he said. David, and so look at the bottom of verse 23, the last sentence. So David heard. <laughs> That's, it's like his ears perked up. He really should not have, he just should have kept his mouth shut. In hindsight, well, he didn't have hindsight because his head was separated. So, but when he, again, he put his sandals on that morning, it uh, would be the last time because David heard. Verse 24 and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. Well, David saw that too. And that didn't sit well. I mean, where's everybody going? This is the battle line. Well, well, we're going to line up a little further back. <laughs> there is a saying, you know, fear is born from gazing at the foe. Staring at how big and bad the foe is. And it is true. If you, you get a dose of the enemy like that, you're just afraid. And you're look, not looking at God. Well, Saul was looking at the foe. And so Israel, again, powerless. Because they followed Saul who did not follow Yahweh. And not to indict all of them as individuals. Because Jonathan certainly loved the Lord. And he's there. The people said, give us a king like the nations. Instead of, give us a king like God. After God's own heart. We can say that looking back at the story. Don't know how we would have done if we lived then. Verse 25. So the men of Israel said. Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. 
And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. So I guess they got, they, David provided them with a fresh audience. Because my first thought is, why are they talking to the lad? He's not part of the army. That's usually they, you know, he's beneath us. We're not going to talk to him. But they're talking to him because I, they're just nervous Nellies. Is why they talk to anybody who will hear about how dramatic the situation is. Verse 26, David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine <laughs> and takes away the reproach from Israel? For well, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should so defy the armies of the living God? You just, this, that's, you know, cheer time. When you read it, when you live it, it's not cheer time. It's like, excuse me, can you get this giant off of me? But right now, in the story, we are attracted to this man, this youth, and all of his energy. Now, when they said... He gets the king's daughter. Well, David played in the king's court. Maybe he got a look at Mirab and Michelle and said, you know, they're, they're good looking. I wouldn't mind having them. Or the one I like, David, you mean my father's house would be tax exempt? I like that one. Get a new chariot. So David, again, spoke to the men. Verse 26, rereading parts of it. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? Tell me again. David saw this as a reproach. The others don't seem, they know it is, but they're not voicing it. They're not saying, this is shameful. I wish we had a champion. I'm not strong enough to face him. But David, even in his youth, he sees what's going on. This is a reproach. Who is this godless man? We say, no, he wasn't godless in the technical sense. He had his idols, but they're not really gods. So in that sense, they're godless. He should defy the armies of the living God. Oh, David was very sensitive to God. And it is said that Saul did not seek out Samuel. You think maybe he would have dispatched a runner to go get Samuel? But Saul will not seek Samuel until after Samuel is dead. How messed up is that? Verse 28. Now Eliab, the oldest son, heard when he spoke to the men... And Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom did, have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Oh, this is priceless. Eliab should have just shut up. Uh, before David can fight the enemy, he's got to fight family. He meets with conflict from his own blood. How typical of life, his first obstacle, a type of Jesus who was not received by his brothers. John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Saul, the king, he's not going to be very receptive in verse 31. Initially, uh, Matthew chapter 2, when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The opposition everywhere. And of course, the giant Goliath. And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And this is captured in this story. These similitudes are they're everywhere. He says, For you have come down to see the battle. <laughs> what battle? 
There's no battle going on. Uh, you're exaggerating. <laughs> you're flattering yourself, he could have said. If he was the insolent lad that he's accused of being, well, first off, he's, he's saying, you didn't, you know, you didn't, knowing you, David, you didn't take care of the sheep. Well, David did. Verse 29, and David said, what have I done now? Typical younger brother to bigger brother, right? But then he says, is it not a cause? In other words, he looks at the crowd, he says, can I get a witness? <laughs> Had he been insolent, he would have said, <clears throat> excuse me, Eliab, did Samuel anoint you? No, no, he passed by you, didn't he? Did you jam in the king's court? No, no, not you again, me. He were truly insolent. But he does none of this. He just reasons. And it's a good reason. He says, there's a reason to be disturbed, Eliab. Is there not a cause? Why should I be comfortable with this? As you've obviously become. He didn't say that. I would have messed up and said, you know, as much as I could have gotten out. Then, verse 30, he turned from him toward others, toward another, and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. And so there he's getting, he's, he's looking away from Eliab. He is, the indignation is beginning to percolate. He says, oh, come on, there's a cause here. Isn't there? And he's excited about this. Verse 31, well, I can't question. Is any, have you ever get excited about your faith? So you, you old timers, I don't mean in age, I mean who've been in Christ a long time. You, do, you, do you ever get excited about the things of Christ ever anymore? Or is it just kind of old school now? And, well, not old school, but you're so familiar with it, it doesn't move you. I would suggest to tell God just that. Lord, I, I need to be refreshed. Verse 31, now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. <laughs> David's righteous indignation propelled his words to the king because no one else was saying anything like this. Somebody said, huh, what? He said, just right up to the king's tent because they were desperate for a champion. And David alone spoke like a champion. Now, could he back it up? Or was it just, you know, religious language? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine and on and on and on and on? So dares defy the armies of God. Well, we're going to find out. I would not, being the man that I am and know that I have been, I would not like to be in David's position unless I had the same fire in my belly. Verse 32, then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight this Philistine. Well, arguably, I mean, any leader would have said, you know, you, you, you don't understand. This guy's nine foot tall. He can dunk a basketball without bending his elbow. Or, I mean, without straightening his elbow. Sorry. It's not dyslexia. I don't know what that would be. Anyway, <laughs> his confidence, David, is based on zeal alone, it seems. But his experience He's killed a lion and a bear. Saul, have you done that? Eliab? I mean, the, the Syrian bear gets to be about 500 pounds. And when he engaged these beasts, he's going to tell the story in a minute, they would have eaten him if he lost. So he knew this going into the fight with the lion and the bear, and he took him out. So now looking at the Philistines, I'm going to do the same thing to him. 
somebody surely was praying that God would send somebody to destroy the giant, and God is answering their prayers. After 40 days, this rock slinger is what David's going to be. He's going to do just that. Verse 33, And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Well, you would expect Saul to say this, but knowing the man, you know that he's instinctively contrary to God. Saul's instincts always go opposite God in God's name. You find people who claim to be Christians do the same thing. They tell you, they talk the Christian talk, they quote the Bible, but instinctively they do not do what God wants them to do because he's turned them over to themselves and he's not duct-taped their mouths shut so they can say whatever they want to say to seduce people to believing them. Saul had experience, but he didn't have faith and that's why he couldn't use that experience today. God knew David was fit for this match, matchup. David did not have experience with Philistines, but he had experience and faith in killing big things. He says, for you are but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And that's the material, materialistic, uh, materialistic unbelief in, in action right there. Satan is not a blowhard. He's a real enemy. And he will call every bluff into contest. He will engage in combat. He is not timid. And he is a man of war from way back. That's the devil. And that's a picture of Goliath pictures in one hand the flesh. And another hand he pictures Satan. Um, it's a very real enemy. And you could say the world in other ways also. With all of his armor and all of his confidence. And all of his arrogance. And his disinterest in Yahweh. Verse 34, and not only was he disinterested in Yahweh, he was interested in false gods. Verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose again, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. David said, I didn't take any mess from a lion, taking one of my dad's sheep. I'm not taking any mess from this Philistine. <laughs> David, this is a, he's saying, here's my resume. I am not green as I look. He had faced death in battle, and God delivered him. He says, I went out and struck it. He knew how to kill. He, um, and what he says, and delivered the lamb from its mouth. Not only saving the lamb, but slaying the beast. The two different they're not the same thing. He could have delivered the lamb and chased the animal off, but he slays the animal because he says, and it arose against me. The lion did not take it lying down. He got up. And where this interesting little note here, he says, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. David's no small teen at this point. He's gone, as I mentioned, through a growth spurt. But the fact that he mentions that it is bearded means it's not a juvenile and it's a male. So it's a, it's a matured male lion. He's not a, a cub that he's facing here. And when I mentioned his size, Saul's going to try to give him his armor. If it fits Saul, for Saul to even suggest it fits David, it um, has to imply that David was sizable enough. I don't like all of those little precious moment things that show David and his pants are too big and sword is bigger than him it's just that sort of thing's not mine anyway 
uh, verse 36, your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Seeing he has defied the armies of God, it's on. <laughs> David's like, no, I'm not bad. I'm going to take this guy out. If you don't let me go, I'm going to sneak out and kill him in his bed. <laughs> He's not being idealistic. He's saying, I have, had, I have experience. Confidence without reason is arrogance and it is folly. And that is not what is going on here. He is not stepping out into the mission field like John Mark, you know, stepped out into the mission field, found out these people eat disgusting things. And he wanted to go home, and he did. He recovered, but there's great lessons in that. There are no shortcuts to faith. And uh, that's part of the lesson here, too. And that the prize of achievement for the Christian is to be faithful, is to believe. Faith moves forward in the face of defeat. It still gets up and goes to go and trust God because it has enough proof about God, whether it likes it or not. And... Just ask the heroes of faith in chapter 11 if faith is something easy or fun because all of it is built on hardship. We don't read, and Abraham had faith because life was good. If, if a prosperity teacher wrote the Bible, they would say something like that. But thank God they're banned from writing anything like that in the Bible. He says this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. This godless animal is what he's calling him. And he says, seeing, a, seeing he has defiled, the fluent blasphemer is going to pay. Big mouth. <laughs> the armies of the living God have been defiled. Well, you know, of course, that's just a, a buzzword for us. It puts a buzz, you know, Revelation 19, verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And we'll be in that number. You won't recognize me. Because I'll probably have hair and no glasses. <laughs> uh, I wonder, I wonder, if I live long enough to be raptured, will I get to throw a rock at somebody on the way up? <laughs> you know, I mean, just to get their attention. <laughs> uh, that's not very Christian of you, Pastor. Yeah, but it's a thought, is it not? He's like, well, okay, I'm in. I can get away with this. <laughs> and then the Lord sends you back down head first. <laughs> On second thought, maybe you need to. Okay, enough of that. No humor tonight. Verse 37. Moreover, David said, Yahweh who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and Yahweh be with you. <laughs> Saul is just such a weasel. Okay, look, I got nobody else. You sure you want to go, kid? As long as I don't have to go, fine. Uh, he's just too spiritually dense to appreciate what made this man say what he was saying. He didn't get the spiritual side where you hmm, kill the lion, kill the bear. He didn't, what didn't register with Saul is by the hand of the Lord, I'll take him out. Because in 1 Samuel, we read in the, uh, when Samuel invited Saul to the dinner. So the cook, uh, 1 Samuel 9, verse 24. So the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here it is, what was kept back. It was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you. Since I have said I invited the people, so Saul ate with Samuel that day. But it doesn't say that Saul said, why me? 
Why is a man of God treating me like, the, like I'm the star? But he just said, fine, and starts eating. And Samuel said, we pray before we eat. <laughs> Samuel already did that. But you just get the, he's just spiritually dull. Is That's Saul, not Samuel, of course. Uh, so here is another gesture of a righteous man. It doesn't, it doesn't compute with him. He will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. The just shall live by faith. Paul says that three times. And I think each time he said it, he had a, another bruise and bump to show for it from his persecutions. And Saul said to David, go and Yahweh be with you. Um, so let's get this straight. A shepherd, not a king, will represent the people of God on the battlefield. There's a type of Christ for us. He is a king, of course. But he is also the good shepherd. He is both. Verse 38, so Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. (laughs) No, no jokes. Uh... Here's an attempt of the flesh to suit up the righteous with the suit of the flesh. Uh, The suit of the faithless, trying to suit up the faithful. F.B. Meyer, who was a uh, pastor in London over 100 100 years ago, he says, Saul was eager for David to adopt his armor, though he dared not don it himself. It's true. Yeah, you wear what I can't wear. Maybe it'll work for you, kid. It ain't going to work for me because I'm not going out there. But David stepped away from Saul's armor. He chose to face the giant as he was. He said, this is who I am. I'm going to try to be somebody else. Um, For a little while, I tried to be like Chuck Smith. It didn't work. (laughs) So I just myself, if the jokes are corny, which they never are, it's a miracle, uh, then they have to be corny. But I'm going to be myself. And I encourage Christians in the spirit, of course, don't be your flesh. That's not the implication. But be who you are. Develop that. Develop who you are. And you will have, I think, a better go at things. But now, if you discover you're just a mean, snot-nosed little person, then you've got a lot of work to do because that's not who Christ wants you to be. Um, I think that occupies a lot of time in my prayer. Not prayer about others who are that way, but prayer about my weak points. It doesn't take much time. I've only got one or two. (laughs) Oh, Lord, I've eaten too much vanilla ice cream again, and that's my worst problem. (laughs) I wish. Anyway, he put on a bronze helmet on his head, clothed him with the coat. Uh, There, again, the Jewish king had a bronze helmet. And it contributed, his armor contributed nothing to the victory. Verse 39, David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I've not tested them. So David took them off. This doesn't work for me. I can't look at I can't look at I look like a penguin with this. I can't do this. Saul's vision for David. But it was not David's vision for David. Not God's vision. It was borrowed armor. And borrowed armor is not for the Christian. You have to have your own suit of armor. And you can't turn it in shiny. Here's my armor, Lord. Well, there's no dents. Well, <laughs> there's some sweat from dodging. <laughs> that doesn't count. He says, I cannot walk with the, these. That says it all. 
He could not walk dressed like this kind of a king. We cannot fit man with armor of man over the armor of God. And so many lessons here. I had to take them out. Who can remember them all? But it's just, a, it's, after a while, it's just that you absorb the event. You, I can't remember all the points. If I sit down, I can and think about them. But when I'm going through struggles, all I want to remember is I need to be armored too. Giant, the giant has his coat of mail and I've got my shield of faith and breastplate of righteousness and helmet of salvation. My feet are shod with And on it goes. And the sword of the word. He says, I cannot walk with these. So David took them off. Perfect. What, what did not work for Saul wasn't going to work for David anyway. He could have said that. Listen, your armor all has gotten you is fear of the giant. My armor is going to be a little different. The shepherd's garb. Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand. And he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch, which he had, and his sling was in his hand. And David drew near to the Philistine. Yeah, he's drawing near to him. Now, we're not going to get to the battle tonight. That'll be next session, hopefully. We're almost done. Uh, He took his staff in his hand. So he's not going empty-handed. You can say, you know, the, the wooden staff. Of Calvary, if you wanted to really put that kind of meaning in there, I don't think it'd be too much of a stretch. He chose for himself five smooth stones. Side note, Goliath had four brothers. <laughs> so I got one for Goliath in case his brothers don't like it. I got one for them too. Now, I don't think that was in David's thinking, but it's in my thinking. And so he goes out with his magazine loaded. And he's uh, very serious about this. These stones... They're in the brook, and they're made smooth by years of the action of the water, smoothing them out, making them better for hurling, coming out of that sling with more accuracy. We pray, we look at that, we say, Lord, can you wash me smooth so that you can hurl me at an enemy? That's beautiful Bible language. But I will say this, those who have done things for God have done so because they've had beautiful Bible language. It counts. It does matter. Because God draws from these things later. Something stands out in a sermon. Something stands out in a devotional time. And you may forget about it. And then one day you're on the battlefield and the Lord pulls it out for you. And he doesn't do it just for you to ignore it. <clears throat> this, um, the five smooth stones, why not just one? Well, he's not overconfident, number one. Number two, there's also an armor bearer to take out. And he might miss at the overconfident part. But that armor bearer is a grown man. That shield's big. He's not a little boy carrying Goliath's armor. Uh, This is a a man who is uh, himself capable of doing some damage to David. And so he goes out ready. And you just got to love this. And he put them in the shepherd's bag. In a pouch, which he had. Which where he also kept snacks. And a little beef lamb jerky or something. And, and, And it's just interesting. It's just so natural. And the sling was in his hand. In other words, it wasn't in his holster. And he drew near the Philistine. Later he's going to run. Not yet. We'll get that late next session. What's at stake here? Everything. His own life. And Israel. David lost. And he is not... uh, David's not fooling around either. You say, the giant's really big and mean. Yeah, but so is David. He might be not as big, but he's just as mean. 
So here's Goliath on the other side. I'll finish with this. He's on the battle line. He did his big talk for the day. And suddenly there's a figure stepping out from the Jewish camp, stepping out from the line. And as it emerges, he sees it's someone coming out to face him. So he grabs his gear and his armor bearer. And as David emerges from the ranks, Goliath heads out. And he is going to have contact with a man of God. Contact with a man of God is imminent. So I look at a verse like that, and I say in my life, I want to be the man of God that the enemy has contact with. I can't avoid that. I want to perform with everything I've got. I have a lot of righteous indignation, and I have to watch it because it could quickly become flesh, carnal. Uh, But that does not mean that I'm going to surrender righteous indignation. When I hear of something that's absurd, it's absurd. And if persecution is the consequence, then persecute. Uh, But I think when we hear about the insanity that goes on about us, there should be a righteous indignation. And we should express it to people. Yeah, well, you like your little weird old stuff? You you know, you want to censor me? I'd like to censor you. um, Anyway, I should stop from starting to get in the flesh. (laughs) Every old righteous indignation come up. Anyway, let's pray. Our Father, may we do something with these lessons. And may they not just be these fascinating Bible stories, which they are, but may it work its way into action for the righteous. Knowing that you, as Jesus prayed to you, he said, Righteous Father, and that you are. May you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.